You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today, taking out a part of, of your busy day, I'm sure, to listen to our show. You can keep up to date and informed about what's going on with us, guests, topics, and so forth by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. And uh, feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Um, Today's guest, Dr. Stasha Gomenik, has uh, was brought to, to my attention by one of our loyal listeners, so I'd like to thank her for that because Dr. Gomenik has just provided us, as you'll, as you'll come to hear, with just so much information on sleep. And in fact, we've decided to make it a two-part series. There's just so much to cover here. Um, but please uh, subscribe to our podcast. We are The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. Or you can find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada site, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So excuse me for racing through this, but we do have so much to cover here. Um, so I am mindful of the time. And as mentioned, today is part one of our two-part series with Dr. Stasha Gomenik. And through our two episodes, we will be addressing uh, all things sleep, the physiology of sleep, nutrient support, the role of vitamin D in sleep, the gut-brain interactions, and other relevant information that are just so important for achieve, achieving optimal sleep patterns. And as we continue to learn how important sleep quality is, not just the quantity is for overall optimal health, I really do hope that this mini series will really give you a lot of information. There's a ton of information. I know that. I just hope that you can extract from it and use it in application for your better health. So on to Dr. Stasha Gomenik. She attended college in California and medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, receiving her MD degree in 1983. She completed a neurology residency in 1989 at the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. From 1991 to 2004, she practiced as general neurologist in the San Francisco Bay Area. In 2004, Dr. Gromanek uh, moved with her husband to Tyler, Texas, and began to concentrate on treating neurological illness by improving sleep. She published a pivotal article in 2012 proposing that the global struggle with worsening sleep was linked to reduced sun exposure. And in 2016, she followed with a second article linking the change in the intestinal microbiome to the epidemic of poor sleep and described a simple process for normalizing sleep and the intestinal bacterial population called right sleep. 
In 2016, she retired from office practice to have more time to teach. She currently divides her time between teaching individuals through virtual coaching sessions and teaching clinicians from a wide variety of medical and dental fields. Her popular courses and lectures help clinicians improve their patients' health and well-being by improving their sleep. As mentioned, we have just a jam-packed two episodes coming. Um, Today, we'll focus on um, the topic of sleep and why our sleeping patterns have been um, so uprooted and is is the way we sleep now, is poor sleep the norm, the new norm. Uh, We'll talk about vitamin D and how it's linked to sleep. We're going to talk about um, why it's so important to know your serum D levels, all of these things and so much more we will discuss with Dr. Gomenik. So please do stay with us. Fascinating lady, wonderful conversation. I really think that you will get a lot out of this show. There's no space that his love can't reach There's no place where we can't find peace There's no end to amazing grace Take me in with your arms spread wide Take me in like an orphan child Never let go
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, our show today is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. And as a reminder, we would love you for you to follow us on our social sites. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. Stasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this uh, interview for quite a while. Thank you, um, Kathy. As, as a lot of you know, I, I, too, I do talk to our guests ahead of time, and uh, I think we could have done our interview actually in that pre-interview. It was just such a, a riveting conversation. So let's get right into it. Um, sleep. Is lousy sleep, disturbed sleep, is this the new norm for us? We just grow with it, accept it? Uh, yes, it's the new norm. No, I don't think we should accept it. And um, I got into sleep sort of uh, just kind of in a surprising way. One of my patients with daily headaches, so I'm a neurologist, and I've been in practice for 30 years. I'm now retired. Uh, one of my headache patients, so I had about half of my practice in uh, daily headache sufferers. And in 2006, one of my daily headache sufferers got better wearing a CPAP mask. And she was in her early 30s, very healthy, didn't have a fat neck. She didn't look like what we had been told to look for in order to send someone for a sleep study. And keep in mind, that's now 15 years ago. So we really didn't have much information. And at the time, I'm, I was always looking for something to do with daily headache patients because nothing that we'd ever used, in my experience, uh, continued to work over time. So it helped for a while and then it would go away. The fact that this woman who had daily headache couldn't even put her hair in a ponytail, uh, her head hurt so much, could strap on a CPAP device and then her headaches went away, that to me was totally bizarre. Um, and she did have some mild drops in oxygen, but it wasn't severe. And I really couldn't believe that it was about oxygen. Lack of oxygen leads to stroke. It really doesn't lead to headache. And at the time, the only answer I could come up with was, well, maybe this CPAP device is allowing her to stay in deep sleep longer and accomplish repairs. Uh, I think of migraine as a chemically based genetic disorder. So in short, I started doing sleep studies on all my daily headache sufferers. And by a couple of years later, there was a emerging trend. So most of these women did not have uh, any drops in oxygen. They did not have apnea. They just did not have rapid eye movement sleep. So they didn't have the phases of sleep that allow us to make new memories, to make our mood better, and apparently to uh, make the chemicals that are needed to prevent migraine. So after doing many sleep studies in my headache patients, I began to think about whether or not I needed to do sleep studies in my other patients. So on the weekends, I would see patients with stroke. They clearly all had um, sleep disorders, but I had many other younger patients, kids with epilepsy, kids with headaches, kids with tics. Um, for the first time, I was now thinking of, well, if these are all genetic disorders, really we should be concentrating on how is it that they lost their ability to shore up those mutations or to make their brain function normally because it was functioning normally before and now it's not. And they've had that genetic mutation since the beginning of their life. 
So there was a different way of thinking about it. So now I was thinking about neurologic illness as manifesting once I lost my ability to fully repair every night. And now all of a sudden sleep is the most important thing that anyone can think about or try to treat. Now here's the problem. I had five years of sleeping pills and CPAP devices. So if you had sleep apnea on your sleep study, then I could put it, put you in a CPAP mask. And I was still not thrilled about that. It seems so peculiar. It's, you know, the sort of thing only a doctor would come up with. And we put this thing on your face and blow air up your nose. But it worked and it didn't work all the time, but it worked in a lot, enough people to make it still a valid thing to do. But what about the 80% of the patients that didn't stop breathing? What does that mean? They just don't get into that phase of sleep. That means it can't be focused here. So I began to read about how do we get into REM sleep? And it's very peculiar, but we get paralyzed when we're in deep sleep. That's kind of scary, I think. I mean, we get paralyzed. And the pulmonologist who was reading my sleep study said, yeah, well, some of your patients only stop breathing in rapid eye movement sleep. And I said, well, why, why would that be? You know, our airway can't be any different in that phase than other phases. No, we get the most paralyzed of all in REM sleep. And I was really put off by that. I thought, that's kind of scary. How do we keep from drowning? If we don't swallow our own spit while we're deeply asleep, we're going to die. So things like that started to occur to me. And I started to read more about the cells that actually run these phases of sleep. How do we transition from light sleep? Why do we do four hours of light sleep interspersed during the night and four hours of deep sleep? Is it possible that being paralyzed leaves us vulnerable? I would think it would. So we do these little blocks of deep sleep while we're paralyzed interspersed with light sleep where we wake to lighter phases where we can sort of listen and be more aware of what's going on in the room to protect ourselves. And once looking at that and the mechanisms behind it and which chemicals run that, I began to think of it on a cellular level, which is kind of weird. Um, and about these cells that are constantly beating, there are pacemaker cells in our brain stem and the lower part of the brain that does controls these phases of sleep. Those pacemaker cells start beating the minute we're formed in utero and they never stop. And that's really intriguing. And in about five years into this, with all these ideas in my head, but no clear answers as to why so many of my patients would have abnormal sleep studies. In fact, all of them had abnormal sleep studies. Once I learned to look at the second page, so the first page says apnea, no apnea. But that's not the whole story. Most of the time, the lack of deep sleep is not reported on the first page because the, the, the lack of deep sleep is not reported because the logical question of the patient would be, okay, great, are you gonna fix me? Let's, let's get that back. That's gonna help me heal. That's gonna help me feel more rested. That's gonna help me get paralyzed correctly so I don't have pain in my knees when I wake up. Let's fix it. Well, we don't know why, and we don't know what to do to fix it. So now I have these ideas, and I see that every single person that's seeking to see a neurologist has an abnormal sleep study, and at, your first question was, is that the new normal? What, that's pretty terrifying, really. I'm seeing little kids uh, that are 
that are kicking their legs and have apnea. So yes, that is the new normal. Should we accept it? No. Well, that's right. You know, and that's the thing, right? Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's correct. Just because we've come to accept health issues as normal, it doesn't mean that's the way it should be. Now, you've done studies with vitamin D and you've done studies with B vitamins, all within our grasp of attaining. And I think it's so important that we start to make that connection, the same connection that you did. I've never looked at sleep until I met you as it didn't occur to talk about the cells and the mechanisms that cause sleep because it's part of our day. It's like breathing. We don't think twice about it. What have you found? You know, we have so many studies about vitamin D and in this current state, vitamin D and COVID, vitamin D and everything. How have you linked vitamin D with our sleep? Great question. And um, though I am sorry COVID happened, um, COVID has really put vitamin D on the front page. And the most important part of this interview is that vitamin D is dangerous stuff. You really need to know what you're doing. You can't just take it and dabble in it. Um, So what happened was in about year five of doing all these sleep studies, and again, I only had CPAP devices and sleeping pills. One of my clients was an 18-year-old beautiful girl about to leave for college, and her sleep study showed that she slept for 10 hours. So she didn't have any sleep complaints. She fell asleep. She stayed asleep for 10 hours. But if if I was able to look inside her sleep, what it showed was that she never got into deep sleep at all for 10 hours. She would have awakenings to light sleep. It looked like every time she tried to get into deep sleep, she would wake to light sleep. She didn't wake up to consciousness, so she wasn't aware of this. She turned out to have a very low B12. And I knew nothing about vitamins. I knew what I learned in medical school, which was years ago. And, um, but I was thinking about it now as, oh, B12. We use that to do something in the cell. It's a, net, a necessary vitamin, which means we can't make it and we need it to make cellular repair and then so I go to Google and Google says it's peculiar since I'm you know should be going to the neurology textbooks but it says b12 deficiency chronic fatigue and daily headache well I've never done a b12 level in a headache patient in my life so number one it turns out how you look at things if you're looking for deficiency states then you're going to go to that literature if I as a physician am trained that vitamins are unimportant and that they're for lesser humans like dietitians. You know, I've, I've been, I'm treating as though this is below my level in some way, which is what I think physicians are trained about vitamins. So with the idea that this is now a cellular problem, what if this was a deficiency we could give back? So I start with sending out my patients for B12 injections, which turns out to be the wrong attempt, approach. You really need to be on pills. But it starts me down the path of, oh, could this be a deficiency state? So I start to do B12 levels and B12 is an important player. We won't have time to go over it, but it's known for 50 years to play a role in sleep. So one of my clients, my patients says, you know, my doctor gave me vitamin D and my wrist pain went away. She didn't notice that her sleep was better. But the second thing that was in the background for many of these patients was that they had unexplained pain. As far as I'm concerned, 32 year olds shouldn't have pain. So most of these women with daily headache and knee pain or ankle pain or back pain, And they had movements on their sleep studies where they were moving their legs. So when this gal said, oh, vitamin D, my doctor gave my vitamin D and my wrist pain went away. I thought, okay, well, I'm just drawing blood anyway. Let's just throw it in there. 
So for four months, I measured vitamin D and B12 levels on all my patients, and every single one of them had a low vitamin D level. Now, I, I had no interest in vitamin D. As far as I was concerned, it's not in my field. Um, but I now have, you know, a 1000 patients, and they all have sleep studies, and they all have low vitamin D. And it's between August and December when the D should be the highest. And most of these are young, healthy patients who go outside with their kids. So that seemed weird. And then in December of that year, at the end of that, two guys came back and said, you know, you sent me that note about vitamin D. I started taking it. And within about uh, three weeks, my headaches got better. My sleep got better. Both of them were men who had D levels higher than a lot of the other patients. And they were also on CPAP, which I think really helped. But they had a clinical observation that this vitamin D was the stuff that made me feel better. They didn't have B12 deficiency. The B12 turned out to be there in only the sickest, the sickest of the, uh, the group. And it turns out B12 deficiency is a secondary deficiency to D. It's the D deficiency that finally causes the B12 deficiency also. So that clinical observation in those two guys led me to go to the literature search and say, well, what would vitamin D have to do with sleep? And when I put in the search vitamin D and sleep, there were no articles. But if putting in vitamin D in the brain, I fell into articles written by a guy named Walter Stump that had been writing about vitamin D for 30 years. And he wrote an article about those little cells I was telling you about that were the pacemaker cells that made us paralyzed during sleep. He had an actual article concentrating on those cells in the brainstem that are sleep switches and that they had vitamin D receptors on them. And I was totally blown away by that. I was just like, well, vitamin D is supposed to be about bones and it's a vitamin. Why, what would it have to do with this? Well, he has 30 years of articles where he puts together a conceptual framework. He put this first in the literature in 1982, where he says, oh, this is the master hormone that links us to the sun in a 365-day annual cycle. This allows all animals to adjust multiple systems in their body to what they need in the summer when there's food versus what they need to do in the winter, i.e. hibernate. So would it be linked to sleep? Of course. So they hibernate, they build their fat stores in the fall so they can use those to survive the winter and they move their fertility in order to have children when there's food. So our reproductive system, our metabolism throughout their whole GI tract and our sleep are all linked to what this chemical is doing. And Walter's writing this in 1982 before this epidemic of sunscreen, air conditioning, computers, and all of the humans who have move up the socioeconomic ladder move indoors. We stop being farmers. And even if we are farmers, we have air conditioned tractors now. He writes this all down before this epidemic begins. And now I'm looking at it on the other side, realizing that all of my patients have vitamin D deficiency and have sleep disorders. And at that point, I call this guy up and I say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm wondering if anybody's written about vitamin D in sleep. You seem to have written a huge number of articles. And he says, no, nobody has, but that makes perfect sense. So together, Walter and I used his scientific observations and my clinical observations and my patients. So the next question is, is there then, if all these vitamin D levels are low, there's a very simple question. Is there a vitamin D blood level, not a dose, but a blood level, that would allow us to sleep better. And in fact, 
that's exactly what happened. So I just started giving vitamin D. I learned an awful lot about how to safely give vitamin D. It's not a safe chemical. If you run it over 80, you will be sorry. Bad things happen, mostly pain, but other things happen. And unfortunately, most of the things that happen when the D is over 80 are the same things you struggled with when they were low. So your physicians won't recognize that it's linked. You won't recognize that it's linked. All the diseases that are linked to low D are all old diseases. They are the chronic illnesses that all of us are hearing about. That means it's cryptic. It's hidden within our, our knowledge. It's there described, but the doctors haven't become aware of it. Also, it's very difficult to keep the vitamin D in range. As soon as summer comes, you've got two sources. So there's a lot to learn about it. But ultimately, it wasn't that hard, especially in headache sufferers, to show that there is a vitamin D blood level that leads to better sleep, and that's 60 to 80. And, you know, this is the issue that uh, I bump up against when I'm working with people as well, and they are prescribed um, in the integrative field. Most often I see it thousands and thousands of doses uh, or IUs of vitamin D, and there has been no blood level check. And and when I, I ask people to get their blood levels, so before I, I'll do a, just a very small maintenance level, get their blood levels checked, but it's not done on a yearly basis. You should get this done. Uh, I, I would, I say uh, twice a year, you may say more often, but it is very important. Um, this, this link between damage and, and high vitamin D is not um, talked about very much. I mean, not at all. And, I, and I've, I've written down and I've circled that vitamin D can be dangerous. And it's an extremely important point that you've brought up. What we're going to do is take a quick break here. We're going to come back. Um, and what we've got so much to talk about to cram into the next 20 minutes or so. So we're going to quick break and everyone will be back in a sec.
are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Stasha Golmanek. We're going to continue along this path. We have so much to cram in here, so I don't want to talk too much. Uh, we left off, and I just want you to put the period at the end of the sentence about um, the dangers of too much vitamin D, and maybe we can touch just a bit on um, what we might phrase as good versus bad vitamin D and supplements in general. So off you go. Okay, first thing I would say is we should really be looking at D as a hormone. It was never a vitamin. It's a vitamin for rats because rats don't go out in the sun, but it is not a vitamin. It never was. It is a hormone. It's a hormone that integrates and bosses all the other hormones. So saying, Kathy, you should take 5,000 IUs of D is very similar to, I tell you, gee, Kathy, I think those palpitations and your depression and your inability to sleep is because your thyroid is screwed up. Uh, Here, I want you to go down to the pharmacy and buy yourself some thyroid hormone, and then I'll see you back in a year. Great, see ya. Like every lay person who's over 30 knows that if I give you thyroid hormone, uh uh-oh, aren't you supposed to do a blood level? Aren't you supposed to say, oh, is it too high, too low? Both too high and too low both screw you up. Every single hormone in our body has a tight little narrow band in the middle where it is designed to stay. We have very important physical processes on our skin that keep us from making too much D. As soon as you make this into a pill, you then put people in a weird environment where they can actually take more of a hormone. So we don't let testosterone be sold in the stores. We don't let thyroid hormone be sold in the stores. And oddly enough, the scientists and the doctors are still in this weird mindset with one foot in the vitamin world and one foot in the hormone world where they say, oh, vitamin D isn't a vitamin, but you can take a thousand IUs once a month. No, you really shouldn't do that because that has never been our physiology. No animal on this planet makes D2, yet this is what is still recommended by the American Academy of Family Practice. That's a chemical that's infinitely older than D. There is not a single animal on this planet that makes that. Only fungus, only mushrooms makes that. That means we are still in a state where we have had knowledge about vitamin D for 80 years, but the literature is greatly flawed. So one, when we don't know anything, we should stick to our evolutionary view. What does the body actually make? Humans are not smarter then biology or whoever created these animals, we're not smarter. We need to think about it in that context. So one of the big dangers right now is, as everyone's starting to take vitamin D to make their immune system stronger, which it will, this slowly goes up over time. Even if you stay out of just 2,000 IUs a day, your vitamin D level will slowly creep up over years. And when it gets too high or when it gets into the 60s, other things are going to happen to your body. The second half of this is going to be about how vitamin D is a support or a growth factor for the bugs that grow in our belly, for the intestinal microbiome. You have to have a D level over 40 to keep a normal intestinal microbiome. 
So it's my belief that all those patients I was telling you about, they're coming into the neurology office. They weren't sick just because they had a low D. They were sick because their D was low and they'd lost their normal microbiome. You really need those two components before your sleep really falls apart. Now, backing up just slightly, you said something about good and bad supplements. Because we don't know why our patients are sick, we have made theories about why, and that's our job. Um, now, I entered into this whole supplement field through looking at sleep, and I got into vitamin D first, and I started to give vitamin D to all my patients. And I learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes, and you can screw up people's sleep by running it over 80, and I learned that every single person needs a different dose. And in order to use this safely to fix your sleep, you must be taking levels every month until you learn how my body feels when my D is below 60, how my body feels when it's over 80. So you have physical cues. This is not the way we thought about vitamin D. We just throw it around. It's not going to hurt you. There are battles about what's the right dose, what's the right level. But ultimately, every single person should be encouraged to pay attention to what their body says about it. Can I just interject one little piece here? Because it's something that I've learned. When people, people who are taking supplements, um, a lot of us are taking supplements for different reasons. Um, a lot of people don't know that D is thrown into many formulas in supplements. So where you might be taking a straight D uh, on the back of your hand, taking 2000 IUs, you may also be accumulating D in other supplement supplement formulations. I just want to point that out here because uh, it wasn't until I started tallying uh, different levels of different vitamins for, for people that I found that out. So um, again, you go. I just wanted to interject that there. Okay. So I want to talk about the fact that the, the bad or good supplement, in my view, that body of literature started at the same time that the bariatric surgeons, and there are probably many paths to this, but at the same time, the bariatric surgeons were starting to do um, gastric stapling or gastric banding. And they knew that the women that they were doing that on or the men they were doing that on were um, vitamin deficient. So they were giving them vitamin combinations and several of them came back and said, you know, I'm pooping these pills out into the toilet. They look exactly like the pills I took. So I can't be absorbing them. Well, I never had that experience with my patients. And it turns out that the, I believe the reason for that is vitamin D is always in the background. Vitamin D deficiency is always there for obesity. And vitamin D has three important functions in the stomach, both sphincters of vitamin D receptors and the cells that secrete acid and intrinsic factor that allows us to absorb B12. That implies that when your D is very low to the point that you become obese and you need a gastric banding done, that your acid production is very low. And in actual fact, now there are articles showing that H. pylori that causes gastric ulcer only grows in people who have not enough acid. H. pylori doesn't survive and pH is a 2.5. So in a person with normal D levels, one, they don't have acid reflux. Two, they have a pH of 2.5 in an organ that's designed with two sphincters and keeps the acid nicely contained. That means we were designed to be able to dissolve raw meat. None of my patients were pooping out pills. That means that there is a basic problem in the background starting at the stomach, not just the stomach, but starting at the stomach that leads to not being able to absorb vitamins. So then you get an idea of, oh, these must be formulated incorrectly so I can't actually use them. 
Now, there's a second issue in the background, which is when your D is low, your microbiome goes bad. Now you have the wrong set of bacteria. And it turns out that those bacteria are extremely important in our ability to absorb things from the food we eat. We're going to talk in a minute how I fell into this important idea that the microbiome supplies B vitamins. But one of the important links is that D is one of the growth factors. So if you have the right microbiome, those bacteria are involved in our biology in a two-way dialogue. Now, lucky for me, the GI literature has now enlarged this to the point that it's become obvious to me anyway, that large parts of the absorption of things like small charged ions, iron, uh, iodine, copper, zinc, those are probably managed by the microbiome. So when we lost our microbiome, and in fact, most of the globe is wandering around looking like normal humans, but they really aren't. They are surviving without one of the organs in their body. So one, you have a, a state where you can't really dissolve because you don't have enough acid. So that's not normal anatomy. And by the way, you, you start that on anti-reflux medicines, which have their own issues. And then the second thing that happens is you've lost this organ in the body that used to be a major player in your ability to absorb things that you would get from your food. One of the things in the background I want to mention is I think probiotics are completely worthless. I don't think, I don't think they really help us. However, there's a second literature that is important and that is over time, it looks to be that we are feeding our bacteria and then our bacteria are feeding us. And I think that's the real story. That means once you get the normal foursome back, and we'll talk about that in a minute, then you can start to see big changes based on what you feed them. You really do change the species that exist inside you. So many of the clients that I would see had already done paleo or done keto or done various things and really didn't see the dramatic improvement in their health that they were looking for. And it's because they're starting off without the normal foursome. And once they get the normal foursome back, then they can start to see the, the changes in weight loss and that sort of thing that they're seeking. So um, I, I'm going to stop there and let you ask any other questions about that. Or Well, what I want to do, so we're going to get into the microbiome is I want you to go over this normal foursome in case you know, people haven't patched it together. So let's do that. Okay. So what happened to me was at the end of two years, so Walter and I published this article about vitamin D and the vitamin D worked for a while, but at the end of two years, we were all floundering again. This is a very important piece right here. Don't go away from this lecture thinking vitamin D is your savior. That's what I thought. It didn't turn out to be that. It's never one thing, okay? So vitamin D is integrated within a much, much bigger, more complex set of hormones, et cetera. So at the end of two years, we're all failing again. Our sleep is crummy. My butt starts to hurt for no apparent reason. Everybody else is complaining of pain. They're looking at me going, well, I took your vitamin D, now what? Um, and at that point, uh, a patient comes in with a book about pantothenic acid, which is a B vitamin. Again, I know nothing about vitamins. I'm not interested in supplements. It's not where my training is. But it turns out pantothenic acid plays a role in our sleep. So the gal brought it to me because they had studies from the 1950s showing that pantothenic acid deficiency, if you induce that using a blocker, it causes insomnia. So I start down this path of giving B complex. Ultimately, where I arrive is... Why would it be that it turns out my patients have become B vitamin deficient as I've given them more D 
That D is actually making them sleep better. As they sleep better, they make more repairs. The B vitamins, there are eight of them. They are used in every single repair that we do. They must be there for us to make DNA, RNA, repair ourselves. That means I actually push them through repairing better into I am now B deficient. Well, their diets haven't changed. So there's a question in the background. I know these people still have IBS. Could it be that the fact that their bugs are wrong, that their, their actual bacteria are not the right ones? Because that's what's being suggested in the GI literature now. Is it that they have the wrong bugs? Could it be that the bugs have been making these bees? And I didn't come up with that. I just started reading articles about the B vitamins and the review articles say, okay, thiamine B1 has a poop bacteria source and a food source, riboflavin B2, poop bacteria and a food source. And basically they just hadn't gotten brave enough to say, oh, all the B vitamins always came from the intestinal bacteria. If you look in the history of how we discovered those vitamins, all of them were bacterial growth factors before we moved to the knowledge that, oh, these things that are bacterial growth factors are also pivotal for our biology. Somebody knew that the bugs were giving us those vitamins back in the 30s, or we would not have said, why don't we just name eight things B? Like there's A, now we'll name eight things B. That doesn't make any sense, except that they all came from the same source, which was four particular species of bacteria growing together in a yeast bacterial mixture that we use to make beer and bread. We use them to grow bacteria back in 1910, 20, when we're studying bacteria. So there's another pivotal piece that I was not the first person to write this, but I was the second person to write it that says, oh, when you go D deficient and you lose the particular four groups of bacteria that are supposed to live inside us, you also lose your source of the B vitamins. That means you have a combined vitamin deficiency state and the vitamin that comes from the bugs called B5 or pantothenic acid acts together with vitamin D to make a, an important neurotransmitter called acetylcholine that allows us to sleep. So if you have a low D for long enough and you lose your bugs, you then become someone who is neurotransmitter deficient. That acetylcholine neurotransmitter is what allows us to stay focused and alert during the day and we flip a switch at night and that same chemical allows us to move through the phases of sleep properly and to get paralyzed properly. It's that so funny that you're bringing that in because uh, a lot of people in their minds are, are, I imagine going, what about melatonin? So it's a whole bunch of new information that uh, people are trying to absorb here through this. It's fascinating to me. Is there a way to start this repair process? Yes. Are we doomed? Yes. No, we're not doomed. And melatonin is linked to B5 as well. You can't make melatonin if you're B5 deficient. So we're not doomed. The good part about it is we can see this in a different way. We can also see it from a historical standpoint and say, this really started when we started to move indoors. And there is a particular path. So if I tell you it's, it's really important to know what you're doing with D, the next question would be, well, how do I learn that since the literature is flawed? I have a website that's called drgominac.com, D-R, no period, G-O-M-I-N-A-K. 
I there have a whole bunch of literature for you, both references and um, written literature, as well as lots of webinars like this, podcasts, other videos. And I have put together a workbook that actually tells you the path to follow in great specifics. The specifics are really important. You need to know what to do with your vitamin D, how to get your D levels done accurately, because there are tests that are being done by your doctor that are not accurate. And that's important, sad, but important. And you need to know when and how to get your microbiome back. And it's not that hard. You really need just vitamin D and B50. The why of that is well described on my website. The how to do it is described in a workbook. It's called the Right Sleep Workbook. It's available on the website. And it actually traces out for you what you should do every single day over a one year period. I've also just put out a new version that has a journal that is incorporated into it. One of the difficult parts of this is one, to follow a program for a whole year is very difficult. To notice changes that involve struggles you've had, eczema, joint pain, depression, anxiety, things you've been dealing with for years, when they go away and come back again, You've never associated them with vitamins before. So it wouldn't be natural for you to say, oh, this is related to this B5 stuff that I'm taking. You actually have to be able to make a journal and notice that before it was gone. And oddly enough, when things go away, we don't notice it. We just feel better. When it comes back, then you begin to associate what I'm doing with these vitamins. And ultimately, over a year and a half to two years, you will have to completely come off the vitamins. We were really not made to take supplements. Other animals don't take supplements. Our biology was perfect until we screwed it up by going inside. That's a concept that really doesn't exist in the supplement industry. But that's really what's happening to all the other animals on the planet. They eat whatever tastes good to them. Now, it does take a while to get to that place, but that's really where our body wants to be. Well, you've done so much work in this, and it and it's again. I've looked at the protocol, and it is work. It's very doable. You're not giving people, you know, 15 supplements that they need to take. You're synergizing all of what you've just told us about. It's a fascinating conversation. We didn't get even scratch the top of what I would have loved to have talked to you about. So I do hope that you can come back on the show because there's nothing better than to be able to interview someone and not have to speak very much. I just, I really enjoy that. Uh, Stasha, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. I know you're a very, very busy lady. So I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for asking me, Kathy. It was my pleasure. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.